Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Inglot, and today I have with me Sheila Boudreau. Hi, Sheila. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. That's awesome. So Sheila is a landscape architect and planner. She's also an educator and spends time teaching at Ryerson University and the University of Toronto. As as well, she's the founder and principal of Spruce Lab, which is a social enterprise consultancy based in Toronto. So I'm really excited to have Sheila here today. I'm particularly curious and interested um, to learn a bit more about the field of landscape architecture and to learn about um, Sheila's experience specifically in communities and working with communities around planning. Um, So Sheila, just to start us off, um, can you tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, you know, feel free to share how how you ended up in the space that you're in now. Sure. And thanks for inviting me. That's really important. And um, and it's an honor to be invited. And it's really important that you're doing this podcast series. So thank you for doing that. Um, so how, how did I become a landscape architect? How did I get to this space where I am right now? Um, that's a long story. <laughs> but it wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> Um, so I'll back up a little bit. So I'm, I'm like a country girl who's been displaced in the city and I was raised by my, um, very young parents. They had me when I, when they were very young. And so I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' place, um, who mostly raised me actually. And I was outside a lot. I was, I was helping with the gardens. I was playing in the Creek. I was talking to all the animals and the trees and, um, and then um, my parents moved, my mom moved to Guelph. And, and again, um, she worked a lot. She worked shift work um, at a factory. And me and my little sister had, we were pretty free range. Let's just say we were free range. It was encouraged. So <laughs> we knew where to go to get help, where to get food. We had babysitters who would come and go. But we were also lucky again because we backed onto a conservation area um, at the outskirts of the northern sorry, the southern end of Guelph at that time, um, the conservation area is still there, but Guelph has really expanded. So I was outside again, a lot (laughs) playing in the creek, in the, in the speed river and, um, drainage ditches and, you know, and I read a lot and, um, I had really interesting friends. And I think because we grew up in an area near university of Guelph, I, was always around people whose parents were professors. And so I thought that you would go through school and then you had to go to university. <laughs> I didn't even know there was any other option. I was always at their homes and seeing what they were talking about and doing. And so anyway, I, I just assumed, that, okay, I'm going to university. So what am I going to be when I go to university? And I started thinking about um, how much I am so uh, passionate about life and wanted to learn a lot more about the science of life. And so, um, again, we moved from Guelph 
to the country near Laura Fergus, um, my mom and my stepdad at that point. And um, we ended up, um, sorry, my phone, I'm just turning that off. We ended up, I went to a small, a smaller country school in Fergus um, with a lot of kids who were farmers and uh, from the country and um, sorry, my phone totally <laughs> just put me off. Where was I going? Where was I going with this? So yeah, again, it was like a very close connection to nature. And, um, and so I thought I would, I would enter biology. And so all through high school, I loved art and I loved, I'm very, very creative, but I also have a science side. Um, my, my mom is very practical, very applied. My dad, uh, stepdad's a tool and die maker, a fabricator. I, I grew up working part-time in the manufacturing plant, putting things together, learning how to make things. And um, I think it's years of being a brownie and a girl guide. <laughs> also like being involved with like thinking about how to doing things. I'm very much about figuring it out, a very resourceful. So anyway, I went into university, into high school thinking, um, what do I do with this? I love art. I love creating, I love drawing. I love, I used to make up songs and I would sing them and then I would test them out on my parents and my friends. And um, I didn't play any instruments except a little bit of flute, but I was always singing. I was in every choir going, I was in the special choirs. So I, I have this like super creative side, but I, I think in, in high school, I felt that, and also because of my upbringing as being very pragmatic, um, British, my mom, and like, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with your degree? I mean, even when I went into biology, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to be? And, and um, it wasn't just purely knowledge gaining for knowledge sake. That wasn't even on the table. Like if you, so, um, I was encouraged to be creative and read a lot, but when it came to actually being able to take care of myself in the future, you know, my mom had been a single mom. My dad and mom uh, split up when I was only five years old and they had already split up a couple of times. And my mom, I mean, she had me when she was 18, 19, my dad was 18. And so she's grown up with having to fight to protect her two daughters and fend for us. Right. And so that was the undercurrent of my upbringing was like, how are you going to take care of yourself? So I've always mm -hmm. been very much thinking about like resourceful, like, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to say I'm a single mom? How am I going to take care of my kids? And, you know, and so um, I like to balance those kinds of things, but I was worried about being an artist only that I, and I wasn't, I don't think I was good enough to be an artist, but I love creating things. So I, I ended up taking a whole lot of art kind of work. I mean, studies from creative writing to uh, fine arts um, while I took science courses. And I also saw that those were not unrelated, even though the world didn't see it that way. So I felt in high school, I was a bit of being um, funneled through, you know, you're either sciences, you're either arts, plus I had this pressure from my parents in a way. So I ended up going into biology at Guelph, but I still took fine arts and things. <laughs> and I ended up um, feeling very frustrated. I started actually to get claustrophobic in labs. I started to feel like this wasn't my space. It wasn't the nature I loved. And <clears throat> I had to figure out a way to combine that. And, and also maybe it wasn't for me, maybe biology wasn't for me. And I ended up um, going to McGill for a term 
in biology thinking, well, maybe it's because I never left home. I left home to go to um, Guelph, University of Guelph. I went into um, you know, a uh, campus resident residence just to get the experience, even though I live near Guelph. But I thought, well, I'll, I'm going to change and I'm always looking for solutions. So I'm like, I'm going to go to McGill to try out biology, make sure it's not biology. And it's, it's that I didn't leave home, but I went there and, and I was like, no, it's just, I don't like labs. I don't, I just don't like being, con- I felt contained and it wasn't, I was really missing the, the balance of being in nature and creating. And so I went back home and I took the rest of the term off and my mom was very, very worried that I was going to quit university. And I was the first person ever in the history of her family to ever go to university. Um, they had come to Canada from uh, England uh, with a, we have a Welsh background um, and a, and a um, Irish background through our names. Um, but I was the first person they knew of that went to university. And so it was really important to my mom that I take time to think it through. And then she encouraged me to explore my options because the alternative for her was I just quit. <laughs> so I took range of all kinds of things at the University of Guelph. And I was really loving taking that. Um, and I and I, can't, I was looking at design degrees. I thought, well, maybe I'll be a designer. Maybe I'll be an industrial designer because I'm comfortable with manufacturing things like that I had been working in metal and plastics at the factory. Um, maybe I want to be um, an architect or, or maybe I'll be, a, um, you know, what kind of design options are there? And then somehow I stumbled across the words landscape architecture. And I started looking into well, where is that offered? That sounds perfect. It's nature with creating things for people. Like I love people. I love communities. <laughs> Who, how have I never heard of this? It was like I had this epiphany. And then I was like thinking, why didn't I hear about this in high school? What is going on? And so I started looking and then I real, and then I found out, oh my gosh, they actually do this at the University of Guelph. Can you believe it? I'm already at the University of Guelph. I'd never. So because I had been so focused on biology, I guess, at that time. So I went into the school. Like I literally just walked right in. And I walked to the dean's office, or not the dean, sorry, the director. Um, and there was a man, a prof there, um, Maurice Nellisher. I remember to this day because we remained in contact with each other. Um, he's now retired. But I went in and I said, hey, what is this landscape to architecture all about? And then <laughs> I told him my story. And he explained to me what they do. And I'm looking at all the beautiful drawings of landscapes and a lot of environmental approaches to planning and designing and uh, protecting ecosystems. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah. And he, he heard my background, science, art, people. And he's like, yeah, you belong here. So just get your proposal or get your portfolio together and put it in and I'll see you in September. (laughs) And so that's what happened. That's literally what happened. And um, the funny thing is, fast forward 20 years later, I'm working at the city of Toronto as an urban designer, uh, designing and, and helping build landscapes in the public realm. And there's a young woman who gets hired by the city of Toronto and her name's Kate Nellisher. And she has a landscape architecture degree, but she's in the public engagement consultation section. And I'm talking to her. I'm looking at her. I'm going, does your dad teach at Guelph? And she's like, yeah, Maurice. I'm like, okay. I I ended up becoming a mentor for her. Isn't that funny? What a small yeah. world. Wow. She ended up working wow. with the team. 
when I was working on green streets and green infrastructure work at the city of Toronto. Um, and we still remain friends. She's down in the States now. She, she was working on her PhD at U of T. But it is so funny. And her dad ended up winning an award for teaching, which I helped write a letter of support for. And that was lovely to see. Um, so I kind of literally stumbled into landscape architecture. So I did the degree. Um, it was a, then a five-year degree. And I had some amazing friends that I'm still really close to. Um, and we were all, like, there was a group of us that were older, um, like more mature students in that we'd already started in another another um, program. Mm -hmm. Not that we were necessarily more mature, <laughs> but um, we ended up having a lot of fun doing, working really hard, remaining in contact. And, and um, everyone has gone in different ways, a lot of sterile landscape architects. But I do think that the, the degree of landscape architecture, what it did give us all is this sense of understanding of the power of creativity and the design thinking process. And the kind of um, it's to me, it's about being rational while being open to being irrational and lateral thinking and allowing that kind of free flowing things. You know, the muse speaks to you. Um, the, you you're the great mystery, the creator, God, whatever you're, you know, some, sometimes these things come to you in ways that you don't know, don't understand. It could be a dream. Mm -hmm. It could be conversations. It could be I go for a walk and someone comes in front of in my path and we have a conversation and it helps me solve my design problem. Like I had nothing to do with that. So for me as landscape architecture, I often think of myself as being more like the messenger and the, the translator of things. Um, there's a little bit of ego, I guess, in that, but I try hard to push that away so that I'm not the one who's like, this isn't my design. It's always the team it's about the people and what they need and want it's about the land and what the land and the water need and want and honoring the the creatures right so yeah, <clears throat> yeah it's been a really rewarding career um and continues to be and it opened a lot of doors for me to get um, to know many amazing people but what ended up happening was um my first job I was working for city of Waterloo in the parks department for some amazing managers and, and colleagues. And because it was a small city uh, with a very strong environmental policy focus, um, they actually had it called environment first. And so my research in my design was always about um, sustainability and, and mm -hmm. thinking about water as we change land and introduce plant material, thinking about what the people need and want, but also how do we live lightly on the land um, and, in, and improve the spaces that we inhabit versus, you know, paving over things. And so I ended up working on a project for a co-housing community um, in Waterloo that wanted to, and I was really interested in collaborative approaches and co-design. And so I worked with them in that, I mean, I only had four months, so it was, um, where they said this is what they need and want for their program. And then I took that and interpreted it on a land base that I was working with, which is in the west side of Waterloo, where there are water issues, the um, water quality issues across Waterloo. So that kind of got me thinking a lot more about larger landscapes. And then um, I thought, well, you know what? I need to think about planning. I need planners 
planners are, are kind of further out making decisions about policy and about larger moves on land and landscape connectivity. And mm-hmm. so I ended up thinking about that and talked to my profs at the University of Guelph and they encouraged me to do a master's in planning. And so University of Waterloo getting a master's in planning. Um, I became, uh, oh, I guess before then I was engaged to my husband um, and he, and he uh, encouraged me as well. Um, and we ended up moving to Toronto because he got a job in Toronto. Um, and we ended up, um, I ended up working for various different firms. Some of them were more larger scale urban design firms. And I was working on some subdivisions, some planning firms as well, environmental assessments and subdivisions. And I felt like I was doing a lot of greenfield redevelopment, which didn't fit well with my value system for the kind of work at that time as it was being designed. Um, it was a lot of new urbanism, which was interesting, which was more about higher density living, uh, walk, <coughs> walkable. <clears throat> and so it was getting there. But it wasn't really what we, we talk about now about, you know, low impact development or pre-settlement development. And, and for me, the move and shift towards, as I do my work, um, looking for maximizing social impacts throughout the process of design, not just the product, right? And right. so um, I ended up working at different firms, uh, some amazing people. I worked for a company called DTAH, award-winning. I learned a lot, um, still in good contact with my friends there. And um, I got to work on the Brickworks um, sustainable project, right? And I was responsible for the plantings, the planting design, all of the site plant designs and helped with the detailed design. And I learned a lot from working with ecologists, um, the Evergreen it was called Evergreen Foundation at the time and thinking about nature-based children's playgrounds. And so, and I was a mom by then I had three kids um, and I was trying to juggle that, you know, and, and so that's kind of my foray into landscape architecture and and planning, I guess. And and I don't know if that answers that question. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. I think, I think one of the things that's, that's, so neat about every guest that we've had on on the podcast so far is they've really there's been sort of this commonality amongst people in terms of rooting their path or pinpointing their sort of their interest in sustainability back to something from their childhood and for a lot of folks it's that um you know that connection to nature or or spending lots of time um in spending lots of time being bored, like unstructured activity, um, unstructured play outdoors. So it's very interesting that, you know, you, you, that you pinpointed that for yourself as well. And, you know, and now you you have opportunities to work and build some of those spaces, whether it be in urban centers or or elsewhere, um, but sort of build those community spaces that, you know, hopefully will help the next generation to sort of be on that same path. So that's, um, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing your, your story. I'm curious, um, you mentioned a bit about uh, Spruce Lab and, and it being a social enterprise. And, um, and I was reading on the website as well, a bit about sort of resiliency and community resiliency. Where did the, um, 
the seed, I guess, for, for Spruce Lab start, well, maybe share a bit about, you know, what Spruce Lab is um, and, you know, where did that, that seed come from or where does that fit into the timeline? Um, so how it fits in the timeline, well, I'll say what Spruce Lab is first. So I created Spruce Lab this summer um, but I had thought about it the summer before, and I and and I had taken um, social um, venture zone. Ryerson Social Venture Zone had a program called Innovation or Ideation Workshops, and it was over the course of of the summer, and it was to help me formulate what Spruce Lab could be. And but but I saw a need for a consultancy that was a social enterprise or possibly even in the future, turning it into a not, not for profit, which is something I've been still thinking about mm-hmm. um, that supports um, it supports ecosystem or nature based solutions. So designing the way I've been designing, but opening up the design process um, to be more co-design and really focusing on social impact. And I want to, in the work we're doing, is prioritizing Indigenous-led projects mm-hmm. and healthy communities. How can we create resilient but health, you know, healthy, vibrant communities? Um, and so I'm still working out what that is. We have some really interesting projects. But basically, I'm trying to use my expertise, my networking, the ways I've been operating in a way that benefits. Um, oh, the other part of Spruce Lab is, fo- is trying to help uh, merging young professionals and and also thinking about indigenous youth and how the whole sustainability sector has so many opportunities for indigenous youth so how can we use the work we do to to be involving youth more directly in this work and um, by creating this and the social enterprise it really can we have more freedom to be doing that, right? It's 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 not a big firm, it's a small firm, but we partner strategically with people who help us get great things done. And, and then I'm an advisor on projects. So we bring in um, the youth and the professionals working with me in different ways. Now that said, it was started up in June. Um, so it's still an evolving thing. And I'll t- come back to that. But how did I get there was um, I left ETH and I, I realized, um, that I wanted to do more planning related work and I wanted to understand how cities are really planned and built. And you know me, the mechanical, like how do they do it? <laughs> and so I thought the best way to new, know how that works is to actually work at the city, the city of Toronto, the biggest city you know, in, in Canada. And I applied for a job with the urban design department in city planning. And I was hired with the, with the group called civic design. And we worked across the city. We worked on um, capital program, capital projects, and we worked with divisions across the city. And I got a real, you know, amazing insider view and gained some great skills and knowledge around um, collaboration, multi-stakeholder engagement public uh, consultation. And um, so I ended up working um, as a landscape architect, also an urban designer and advising my colleagues in urban design about, you know, public realm on streetscapes or public realm um, on private 
condo, you know, landscapes and anything really. It was, it was, it was a, we were a team that were landscape architects, amazing friends. I'm uh, good people. We shared, um, worked really well together. And also the percent for public art program, which is really fascinating. So where a developer um, agrees to fund public art as they fund, sorry, I saw my site glitched. A developer will um, contribute financially to public art to be on their project. And I have a, I I ended up getting a degree in fine art while I was figuring out what I wanted to be at the University of Guelph. And I went into landscape architecture. I decided to finish up my degree in fine art. So um, I'm really, really interested in public art because I feel that storytelling and passion um, in the, you know, the the visual arts um, through music as well. And like that, that passion is something that's really critical to sustainability. You know, we have the science, we, we have a lot of technologies, but we need are more people who, um, who have feel it in their heart and that their soul needs to be sustainable. And so art ha- plays a huge role in that, in, in connecting the dots for people and seeing the relevance to their lives. And so, and also just teaching like ecological literacy and storytelling through design um, so what I ended up doing was I, I came to the city and I started trying to meet the Toronto Green Standard, which I had done as a consultant on my capital projects. So I had small projects, some bigger, sometimes it was like three kilometers of a long street, or sometimes it was a turning lane, a traffic island that was going to be removed and turned into a parkette space. And so I started to experience to really try to apply the Toronto Green Standard, which meant we needed to capture more, capture, treat, um, and hold on to stormwater. We needed to really focus on increasing biodiversity, um, pollinator species, thinking about getting people in, in their, you know, biking more, getting them out of their cars so that the spaces we create encourage them to do that. And so I was doing that and it came to my attention that we didn't have the construction standards we needed or the technical guidance to do the green infrastructure or green stormwater infrastructure, sometimes it's called. And so I started to champion that internally, um, that we need this work, I can help build it, you know, let's build a team, let's create a team. And so I started creating working groups to focus on things like getting that those things, we those building blocks we needed. Um, and at that time, we had a chief planner called Jennifer Kiesmat, who was a very active environmentalist, um, and she was really interested in the work that I was doing and supported that quite a lot. And we had a complete streets guidelines work project underway. And I was advocating for green streets to be part of the complete streets. And it ended up being chapter seven. <laughs> and at the mean, in the same time, I was working with um, an engineer who also understood the stormwater infrastructure. And together we became like this force internally Patrick Chung, um, and he had been doing some uh, projects such as the Queensway Sustainable Sidewalk Project, which was the first right-of-way project, I think, in the world to use soil cells for bioretention under the sidewalk. Um, You can read about that online. But so with Patrick and I working together, we were able to bring that engineering and the landscape architecture together to initiate some more projects. And then the team started to grow a little more and then um, the momentum came, but it was, it was kind of hard because a lot of people didn't know what the word green infrastructure meant. 
um, they, there's a huge resistance to change because it's a lot of work and we didn't have the standards. And there's a, there is in municipalities um, and in any large organization, there's a, there's a, a fear of, um, of risk, right? Because it's the public safety health. And, and so things need to be piloted. So we started to mm-hmm. pilot things and we started to look at where are the gaps in knowledge, where are the, where are the gaps in systems and processes. So I was wearing my planning hat. I could design things for sure. The gaps were in um, the systems we needed to actually get it done. And so we started doing projects based on information that was already proven elsewhere, um, uh, design teams of uh, advisors um, that were technical subject matter experts from conservation authorities advising us. um, And we were building slowly. And um, the idea was let's like, what does it take to do green infrastructure, green stormwater infrastructure in the city of Toronto? What does it take? And that was, that was a very simple research question. And so from that, it became a systems design problem where we were looking at across the organization, what roles can people play? Where are the interests? Where do they lie? Where are their mutual gains? Where are their gaps? And so we worked this, this kind of higher level thinking of systems um, and started to really move that ball forward. But it was really when funding came through um, the Green Streets work, um, where Patrick and I and, and our colleagues, uh, Shane Nestot in city planning, and also with the support of um, Kate Nellisher. Um, so it was like a team of four doing the work of 15. <laughs> and um, yeah, we ended up, and we knew it was the work of 15, because one of the questions Jen Kiesmet posed to me was, what does it take to roll that work out? And we interviewed municipalities across North, across the states mostly, because they're a lot more advanced at that time. This is back in the 20, 2013, 2011, 20, well, I was at the city from 2011 to 2017. Um, and we knew that cities were funding full teams to, to develop and roll out green infrastructure standards. And the teams were anywhere from 15 to 32 people. You know, it was just like massive. We're like, well, what can we realistically do as four people? So we focused on creating new design guidelines and it was called the Green Streets Technical Guidelines, which is now available online. There's now a website called Green Street um, and you can learn about the work of that time. Just go to that City of Toronto Green Streets. Um, What ended up happening was I was working on the Green Street pilots and I was thinking a lot about how I'm not hearing or I'm not I'm not seeing the involvement of the community to the extent that we need this to really be loved, you know, and even more deeply, um, I was thinking a lot about my own Indigenous ancestry um, through my Acadian father and the knowledge that was lost through um, the devastation to the Acadian people when this is way back, right, 1775, but that was when the Acadians lost um, if they didn't escape with their Mi'kmaq families to New Brunswick or other places, Newfoundland, PEI. So if they didn't leave, they were imprisoned and they didn't all have time. My families were imprisoned and sent to the British colonies and they were severed from their their families. Um, They they lost touch of their Mi'kmaq families. Um, And they ended up coming back somehow. We think that my Doucette ancestor walked all the way back from Boston and picked up his family along the way. Can you imagine walking back to Yarmouth area, Nova Scotia? Yeah. 
So I come from a long line of resilient people <laughs> and somehow we don't know how the Buddhist side came back, but they settled probably as far as you could get from Halifax where the British were because the British had imprisoned them. And this was hugely devastation, right? It was cultural genocide. Um, the British wanted to get rid of the Acadians. They feared the mixed breeds that we were called. Uh, they were scalping Acadians while they scalped Mi'kmaq people. It's terrible, terrible times for everyone. Um, and, and the land is UNESCO World Heritage Site now, the, the Grand Prairie area where my Acadian ancestors, um, you know, over like 150 plus years had created the dikes and desalinated them, salt marshes and, and worked closely with what became their family, the Mi'kmaq people. And I think peacefully, well, they peacefully coexisted. But what ended up happening was they lost that, right? They lost the land they'd created. It was all taken by uh, New England planters. And so they had to go somewhere when they came back. So they ended up settling on the Acadian, what's now known as the Acadian coast. And my family's still there, um, became um, fisher people. And, you know, this, you know, it's, they're, it's not, it's, they're not, they're not, it's not a rich area, right? People are still um, super proud of being Acadian. But, it, you know, there's, there's, there's issues. And so my dad left when he was 16 and came to Ontario. And that's how we met, met my mom. He was, he was like 17 and they fell in love. Um, so I was thinking a lot about that as, a, as my kids got older and I was, you know, a mother and I'm working at the city and I'm designing and creating spaces. And I'm looking around me and I saw very little Indigenous representation, visibility in the, in the public realm. And um, ended up, so you can hear my dog scratching at the door. This is the joys of Zoom calls. I she know. I, I might have to get her a treat. No worries. <laughs> I think I might have to get her a treat. So I was looking around me thinking, well, and I don't see any Indigenous landscape architects either. And I don't see, I'm not hearing Indigenous voices in planning. Um, and I thought this is, I need to, you know, there's a story in my bloodline that needs to be honored um, and the indigenous people of Toronto need to have their voices heard. You know, I'm, I'm designing places in Toronto. So why don't I open up the design process um, and work with local communities and, and see if, um, what do they need? What do they want? And the people started using the terms indigenous place making um, after that, I think. And we didn't have an Indigenous Affairs Office at the city then. That didn't come about until I left the city. But anyway, what I did was I, I approached one, um, at the time it was called um, First Nation School of Toronto, uh, at elementary school up to high school age, and talked to the teachers there and the administration. And I talked to the local counselor for one of my pilot projects um, called Raindrop. We ended up being called Raindrop Plaza. Um, and they were really interested in working with me on the design. And I said, well, here's the space. It's about environmental design approaches. Um, we're catching water. The water is going to um, go through this, the pavement and go into the soil and the trees will get to grow really big. And it's all about um, cooling, urban heat island mitigation, biodiversity, there were rain gardens. And I, and I showed them my ideas that were started. And I said, what would you like to do? How would you like to help with it? And so I said, you know, it'd be really amazing to hear about sacredness of water, right? Like water as a, as a spirit, 
um, how do we show that in landscape architecture mm-hmm. and how would you want to do it? So they ended up working um, with an elder, elder Pauline shirt and my friend, Amber Quayle, who is an artist educator and did this traditional beading, beautiful beading done in ceremony about um, the sacredness of water and, and water is life. And so they ended up doing that. And, and the idea was that we take uh, high resolution images of their beading. Some of the pieces are now actually on exhibit at the Rogers Center. Um, and anyway, they ended up doing that and they wanted to make them huge panels, art panels, like five foot by seven feet, maybe they're going to be on a, a fence that enters into the space, the Western entrance into the space. Um, the, that project has been delayed because of um, COVID. It's supposed to be constructed next year. And so I keep on top of it by engaging friends at the city and the councillors and like what's happening with this, you know, how are we going to keep this moving forward? So I started doing that and it really kind of started the conversation around Indigenous placemaking. Um, It should be called placekeeping. You know, Indigenous people have always been in the Toronto area. How do we, you know, um, as makers of spaces, you know, how do we do it in a good way? What does that look like? So anyway, I ended up leaving and going to the Toronto Region Conservation Authority to lead their landscape architecture team. And the same questions followed me there. Um, And so I was looking for a place at TRCA. My team supported the organization across the whole jurisdiction. Conservation authorities are huge. So there's like over 16 municipalities and regions and um, nine watersheds. And so my team worked across them all. And I was looking for a project that we could be working with Indigenous youth and to create an Indigenous youth employment program. And that's where um, I met my friend, Lucia Piccini. She was the project manager for the Bolton Camp project, which had a youth focus already. And together we initiated in the um, program, which we ended up bringing in University of Toronto um, and then through the Native Canadian Centre of Toronto, Elder Wabagoon, and uh, and it became uh, four four of us women co-founded what became called the Nikibi Dawadinigigwag Youth Program, um, just Nikibi Dawadinigigwag, which means Flooded Valley Healing. The youth and Elder Wabagoon developed the name and um, it's Anishinaabe Moen. So, so that kind of thing, you know, meanwhile, we're still cranking out working drawings. We're still doing restoration work. We're still doing (laughs) all the nitty gritty landscape architecture stuff, but the, but the Nick can be done and gigwag was a passion project that we all found time for at the side of our desk. So I used all my vacation. I used a lot of vacation time driving the youth to Bolton camp from Toronto. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I got thinking about social impact and Spruce Lab. Because um, Nikibi Dawadinigigweg is named at high school youth, and it was to introduce them to the idea of green infrastructure and green stormwater, sorry, sustainable design and the whole sector, right? They could be an arborist, they could be aquatic biologist. And it was about having mentors work with the youth while they're paid to help us develop the youth program. And um, now it's being run out of the Daniel School at U of T. Um, and I was thinking about what about these youth after? What happens then? Like, how can we start? How can I use my practice um, to create opportunities for jobs for young professionals to learn how to work in a decolonized way and for Indigenous youth to feel they're in a space, safe space to learn to be doing landscape architecture and planning? 
And I had started teaching um, when I left the city of Toronto to go to TR, Toronto Region Conservation Authority. Sorry if I didn't say that before. Um, and the idea of teaching was also about green infrastructure, um, you know, listening to Indigenous voices in this work and decolonizing the way we practice and even the way we teach. So this last term I was teaching um, a design studio at U of T and we were, and the course was called Our Plant Relations and Decolonizing Design. And so we changed the approach of the course. We, I changed, you know, how, how we even operated. Uh, you know, we started with circle. We ended, we closed at the end of the week with a circle. We had many Indigenous people visit and come in to the space and people who were doing this decolonization work in a meaningful way. So to me, the teaching, the practice, all these things are related. I'm not really good with silos. Um, yeah. Which is <laughs> I like, great. I love <laughs> we, complexity. we need to have less silos. Yeah, yeah. I love <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the problem, right? It's the silos and it's the inability to see beyond them. And it's also the inability for people to see a different future. Um, and that, I think that where the creativity plays a huge gift and role and not only that, it's a responsibility of people who have the, the gift of being creative and can see things, artists, you know, designers, like we can see things. You just need to be able to see it, to believe it, to start working towards it. We can build the plans. We can create the strategies. We, we have the science. Some of it we don't, but we can innovate. Um, but if we don't start along that path, then it won't happen. So mm -hmm. it's not enough. It's, it's actually, um, as a professional, you know, I have a professional obligation to do that, to think seven generations. Like I know that's a, that is an indigenous teaching, but professionals sign their code. Like we have codes of conduct saying we will protect the environment. We will think about future generations. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I, yeah, it's, it's all teamwork to bringing these people together. That's why I yeah. see Spruce Lab is really the power of Spruce Lab is that. Who do we need to be involved in the project to make this happen? And what are those building blocks that need to be in place? And I find that extremely exciting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think a lot, you know, so much of what you said, Sheila, resonates so deeply with, with me. So thank you for sharing. I, you know, that, that concept of teamwork or, or, people power, grassroots, like where these, this change and in innovation happens and comes from, um, you know, I sort of see coming from the, the people level. And it's interesting when you shared your story, uh, you know, about, about going from science to thinking more about the creative side, the human side, the, the spiritual side, the connected side of, of this work. Um, and yeah, I think if, if we're not, you know, my, my background is in, in energy and renewable energy. And, but I, I, I came to it or come to it from a planning and community engagement and, and that the people powered side of it. Cause I think if we don't, if we don't have that and we don't have that connectedness to this work and the work that we're doing, we're um, you know, all the science in the world is not necessarily going to solve the issue if it's not yeah. from the ground and from the people. So exactly. Yeah. So amazing. Well, I think you also need really good, you need really good people writing policy and standing up for good decision making too. Like to me, that that's also a bit of a silo, right? Is not mm -hmm. just community activism, which is so crucial. 
we need people at the top. Like I couldn't have done that work without the chief planner saying this is important, right? And higher yes. and, and the policy needed to be written. It's like my friend leads um, work around on the Toronto Green Standard, right? If she hadn't been for you know forging ahead with her team to do the green roof bylaw um, and all of the TGS work they're doing, like it would have been very hard to do the work I was trying to do because it justified it, you know? Yeah. So it really is about all of these things coming together. Yeah. The interconnectedness. It's so funny because yesterday I was just having a, a conversation with a, a colleague, friend, close friend and colleague of mine who, who works in, in environmental impact assessment and, um, you know, is in policy and she was sort of sharing how, you know, she never saw herself there and she's struggling with it a bit and struggling to sort of, um, you know, find her, her creative side, uh, and her, 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 the humanness in the work that she does. But that's the exact direction that our conversation went was that we need people with this, um, you know, equitable, sustainable, um, reconciliation focused lenses in all work, you know, not just, um, you know, not just doing planning and not just doing, um, you know, grassroots organizing or different things like that. But it, it eventually, if we're going to see real lasting, um, change, we know we need people with those that mindset and those values and ideologies we need them in engineering we need them in politics we need them in we need them everywhere um so anyways it's it's interesting how how you know everything you spoke about is is sort of ties that together that 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 needs to happen kind of across and these silos that are so prevalent um unfortunately really need to start to dissolve if we're ever going to have you know, lasting and meaningful change. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Sheila, I want, I wanted to, so, you know, one of the things on this, on this podcast, and I think why, you know, a lot of folks tune in and listen um, is around this idea of, of what, what can, can we do or what can I do? Um, you know, what, what sort of individuals can do in terms of, um, you know, being a part of this movement, being a part of this change. And so I was eager to hear from you, um, you know, you're welcome to, you don't have to stick to the landscape architecture side, but this is something that I've been thinking about. Um, you know, I, I live rarely, um, I, I don't, but a lot of people don't. And, and I didn't for the longest time either, but thinking about the way that we, you know, we do have for those of us who have yards, even if it's a small backyard, how we think about our space and how we create a space, um, you know, that is more in tune and more aligned, um, more sustainable, you know, do you have any thoughts or advice that you would give to people wanting to sort of curate a different space um, from your landscape architecture background, or, or really anything that you you think you can share around, you know, what, what can I do that idea of, you know, what can each of us do? And this is for folks that you know, maybe don't work in the sustainability field and don't don't necessarily work in this space, but want to sort of curate a life that is more along this path. Yeah, that's such a big question. One, it's one of the reasons I got involved in education, right, is um, I realized that I'm working on a project by project basis. And that's not good enough, 
because I'm we can't solve the we can't create. I, it, it was like a interesting in pilot projects, yes, and they're all important, but this is such a broad problem that I'm we need way more feet on the ground. Yeah. And so I started teaching uh, about green infrastructure at the School of Urban Regional Planning so that planners understand what it is. And then they can ask good questions in meetings when they're helping move that work forward. Or, And the same thing with, uh, and I started teaching the landscape architecture students. But what I'm teaching is about the importance of multidisciplinary work. And we focus on skills like deep active listening, um, systems innovation thinking, and, you know, really the skills that help you do this kind of work. So, um, and I started getting involved with the Toronto District School Board. I mean, I had been as a mom. Um, they knew me as a mom activist. But the Eco Schools program made me, you know, think a lot about education and the importance of education. And they were supportive and partners, actually, in the Raindrop Plaza project that I mentioned, um, which started with uh, Roden Public School. So I'm, we were looking at art that could tell the story of, we were looking at art and worked with local artists, but I had been thinking about education, right? And the power and the importance of education. Um, and this concept as well about responsibilities. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, your rights, but there's also that come with that as the responsibilities. And my friend, Gary Pritchard, who I've been working with a lot more closely to think about um, indigenous engagement and awareness and, you know, the concept of all our relations um, and the, we have responsibility to all of creatures and all of all of the things on the land, the water. And for me, this was part of my being. But so in as a mom as well, like thinking about how do I model that? How do I model that for my kids and how can we change what we do in our daily lives? And so that's why I actually started becoming more involved with the local schools and helping create nature-based playgrounds and things like that. So I think that's though that's the answer is to is to think about that, you know, where what can you do within your local environment where you live, where you go to where you where you where do your kids go, where do you work? Like what can you make a change? There's always things you can do. But thinking about, you know, what are the what are the choices you make? Um, what are the powers you have with those choices and and you know um if you have a house or you rent a place you know what kind of gardening can you put in put in you know urban agriculture start to grow some things yourself that you can it's also really really rewarding my U of T mm -hmm. students were growing plant uh, seeds from peas and pea pod like they were growing pea shoots to learn about remembering how to learn to do this stuff you know um so rain gardens on your front yard, take your downspout, work with people to help you understand the design. There's information online. I have two different nonprofits in Toronto that I've been helping with doing amazing work. Um, you know, get you can get local support. So catch and treat your stormwater. Don't get it into the street system where it's going to overload our creeks and erode our creeks and get to the river and pollute the lake. Um, you know, that you can do. It's on your property or where you live. Um, you can ask your counselor, why are we not seeing more green infrastructure? Like that's their role is to listen to the community. Mm -hmm. um, why are we sending water directly into the catch basins? Ask your counselor. Why don't you have enough green space? Ask your counselor. Like it's only the squeaky wheels that get heard often, right? In, in the politics. It's also the daily habits and, um, you know, where we buy things, right? 
support local. Um, walk to corner stores if you can. Um, if you live in the country, buy online, but buy local, you know, mm-hmm. um, and if you can get out, if you can, it's, you know, for me, I started um, biking to work. I got such great exercise biking to work. And I was very lucky. I know that I could do that. Many people can't. Um, but, you know, find ways to maybe talk to your bosses or or look at your work habits. Like, can you work from home? Sometimes I think with COVID, actually, this has been a huge win for that, um, that we've shown that you can actually lower your carbon footprint by working part time from home. And I think there's the pressures for having more job sharing and more flexible work days and things will come after COVID because it's the world has to keep turning and we're showing that things get done um, and people can be trusted. And in fact, yes. managers know that if you trust your encourage your employees, they become more productive and yeah, know, more enthusiastic, more creative, and, yeah, so, <laughs> more creative, and you know, yeah, contributing and so on. So, I think there's a lot of things. Look at what you know. Look at where your bigger, your biggest carbon budget. Is, you know, how is you, how is your life a carbon budget? And um, things like just recently. I was thinking about how we we do a lot of laundry. Right? I have five adult sized people in my house, and this is small semi, and I'm I'm like doing laundry all the time. Somebody's doing it, and I was thinking about all those dryer sheets, all that laundry. We already put it on cold cycle. I you know I have high efficiency equipment, but those dryer sheets to static cling, right? You you buy them, they're expensive, and then they get thrown in the garbage. They don't decompose. All of those flushable wipes, they're not flushable. I sit on the Ryerson Urban Water Board of Advisors and there was a project done about flushable wipes. Toilet paper is flushable. The other stuff is not. And so yes. it's getting into our systems, our stormwater systems. It's contaminating. So anyway, the, what about the wipes, right? I bought dryer balls that are just wool that are turned into balls and they have cut the drying time they say about 30%. I think they're right. And I don't throw them out. They last two years. Yeah. Now I want to know how much energy I'm saving. Right? Absolutely. Simple, simple thing. It would have been, it was like the cost of three boxes of dryer sheets. Yeah. So I'm saving money. So actually about being smarter, you know, as well. Like I need to get smarter. <laughs> we all do. We yeah. all do. It's such a, yeah. And it's, Thank you for that, Sheila. Thank you for sharing. I think, um, you know, a lot of what you shared today with us, um, you know, you can tell comes from a deep place of passion and, and someone that we had on our, on our podcast, um, not too, too long ago talked about, you know, starting from a place of passion. And I think that's really what you've articulated again today is that, um, you know, maybe, maybe you're not working in, in, the environmental field, but you're working in something and um, you have hobbies and you have different things that you do. So, you know, maybe it's, it's in music or maybe it's in athletics or maybe whatever, but there's everything that we do. There's a way to change the way that we're doing it and, and have it focus more with a sustainability lens, with a reconciliation lens, um, with an equity based lens. So um, yeah, Yeah, I think that's baselands right as we do this work we need to look at we're not increasing harm to people vulnerable populations that we're you know strategically 
making things better for everyone. If it's not better for the, the most vulnerable, then it's not, then it's failing. Right. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention is that we need to start listening to indigenous voices because this is fundamental way of knowing and being, and no one will be supportive of sustainability more than in, than indigenous communities from the work that I've been doing and listening to, you know, it comes down to that. So I think all settlers, all people in, 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 um, municipalities, rural areas, whatever, we need to really look seriously, critically at the what we do, the decisions we make, and start really listening to the Indigenous voices. Yes, absolutely. And this concept of sustainability so being something that is inherently talked about by, or typically, um, you know, by white, non-Indigenous, scholarly folk. And really, it's, it's, it's an inherently traditional indigenous ideology is it's not something that was written or created or talked about first by by white academics so um i think that's so key bringing in indigenous voices listening to indigenous voices um you know and, and like you were talking about with spruce lab employing indigenous youth and giving opportunities um to folks who can can really benefit and have the opportunity to be on a much more level playing field through those opportunities. So, um, yeah. Well, thank you. Contribute. Yeah. We have so much to learn. We have yes. so much to learn, right? And and the project I'm looking at right now in Ottawa, and we're thinking about this. You know, it's like we we learn a lot from youth. We learn a lot from others coming to the circle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I also think about the seven fires prophecy, and it's scary. You know about you know that we have a choice to go two different ways, and we need to think carefully about that. And this with with climate change, what do we have? We have ten years to really significantly make a difference. I think mm-hmm. they had mm-hmm. said something like ten to twelve years. You know, and so how do we move it forward in a way that doesn't freaking paralyze people? And I do think that it has to come from love. It has to come from loving community, loving the planet having a sense of responsibility and, um, you know, honoring that, honoring our ancestors, honoring the, the, the ancestors to come. And these yeah. are important yes. questions. How do we do that? How do we do that will come. We just need to make a commitment to it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And make a commitment to it, regardless of what field you work in. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And, and thinking of it, thinking of it as a journey to like, you know, every little bit is really important. Um, and you might not know everything. I'm, I'll never, none of us know everything. None of us ever will know everything. So how do we bring people into this to help figure it out Mm -hmm. Um, and work on projects that are, you can talk about that you can showcase examples and successes um, to build more momentum. And so in, in the, in the landscape work, when I talk about storytelling, and eco-literacy, what I mean is putting things in the landscape that are, that you see, you see, and you go, oh, never thought about that, but it's not using words sometimes, it's using art, right? So the one at Raindrop Plaza is a giant tree that has clouds as leaves and water going up and down the stem and the roots into stormwater pipes. 
And this is massive. It's going to be in the middle of the space, semicircle for teaching. And an artist, Dan Bergeron, came up with it based on the youth's ideas, grade seven, eight students at Rodin Public School. And that eco-literacy is surprising, but it'll make people stop and think, oh, these trees that I'm standing under are doing this work. Like, look at this, it's amazing, but without any words, like that, that kind of thing, like art can play in storytelling, you know, um, capture people's imaginations that emotionally connect them to thinking differently about things they've taken for granted their whole life, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the other important thing I wanna mention is like reading books and listening to people like Diana Beresford Kroger, people who tell us the wisdom of plants, the wisdom of trees, um, the importance of um, understanding both the science and the art, but you know, she goes deep into the aerosols that trees emit that we breathe in that calm us down and provide us medicinal benefits, all proven scientifically, including cancer prevention, um, you know, uh, regulating heartbeats, amazing stuff. The, the, this knowledge indigenous peoples knew as well. We, we just hadn't honored that knowledge. So anyway, there's some really amazing stuff coming out right now about, so for the sustainability for me is about also honoring the wisdom of the, of the plant beings yeah. and where we get to a place as humans that we have protected them. We need them. They came before us. We cannot exist without plants. Yeah. And it's a fallacy to think that we're humans can ever fight nature Everything we do needs to be um, in parallel and supportive of Mother Nature. We rely on that. We rely on the earth. So this is another thing I'm really interested in is, is, is teaching and learning more about the wisdom of trees and plants. And yeah, yes, it's a fascinating time. I, don't, I yeah. wish we could do it faster. <laughs> this is where I'm interested in scaling things up. This is why I'm interested in your podcast. How do we scale it up? <laughs> yeah, right? absolutely. Louder, and faster, louder. <laughs> yeah, and reach reaching people, right? Reaching people and and inspiring and um, you know, hopefully reaching people where they're at and giving them opportunities to see something in their life, something that they're passionate about and changing the way that they maybe do that thing. Um starting a conversation, helping others, all of that is such a big part of this. So um, thank you, Sheila, so much for everything that you've shared and everything that you've spoken about today. Um, if there's anything you want us to share in the, in the podcast notes, um, you and I can chat afterwards, but I'd love to be able to share any of these projects that you spoke about your website, all of that kind of stuff so that listeners can, um, you know, do a bit of their own digging and, and reading and listening and, and learning as well. So thank you so much for, for being with me today. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Sustainable Stories podcast. This podcast is hosted by myself, Jenna Inglot, and the lovely Roxanne Wagner from Sage Sustainable Solutions Consulting. For a full list of past episodes, as well as our schedule for upcoming episodes, check us out online at sagesustainable.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions. Catch you next time.